Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. I'm Charles Epting from H.R. Harmer in New York City. And I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. Now, Michael, you probably remember, because this was only like a week ago. Yeah. I was on Richard Frajola's message board. True. And someone posted about a new book that was coming out like the next day. Yeah. And I texted you and -hmm. I was like, Michael, we got to get this book and we have to get this guy on the podcast. Yeah. And you were back and you were like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly how it happened. Exactly. I was going to say, I saw this post within minutes. I'm on his website. I find his email. And Cameron Blevins uh, mm-hmm. is the author of uh, Paper Trails, the U.S. Post and Making of the American West. So it's a, it's a new book that that just came out a few weeks ago, and it's already back ordered. Like you can't even get it on Amazon. Or, and, and, and what I love, this is one of these books that is not, you know, again, as much as I love philatelic books, this is one mm-hmm. of these books that that uh, combines philately with larger historical trends yeah. and concepts. I'm partially biased because my favorite college course I took uh, was called the American West. And it was mm-hmm. literally uh, just a, a look at westward expansion and how um, the church and literature and all these sorts of things played into uh, westward expansion. I'm really disappointed that this book wasn't out yet. <laughs> because I feel like this would have been a great textbook. This this yeah. class was offered uh, by the California State Librarian as well, which was awesome wow. to have somebody so knowledgeable. But I feel like he would have loved a book like this. Uh, he has unfortunately since passed. But mm. uh, th- this book that, that, that Cameron has written um, is just inc- an incredible way of of making philately matter. Um, you know, it's one thing to get into the, the weeds of what route a cover took or – what date does that postmark say? And and yeah. a book like this is just so much um, bigger and really puts everything that we do and we love into context. And I think that's really what's exciting about it. Yeah, it, it's a deep dive into the history of the U.S. Post Office and, and how it shaped uh, westward expansion in America. It, it's fantastic. Like like we said, it's sold out everywhere. Right now it's on back order, so we had to order digital copies in order to read the guy's book before we interviewed him. No, I'm glad to see this book doing well, and I really can't wait. Let's uh, let's bring Cameron on. Hey, Michael and Charles, how are you? Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Looking forward to this. Yeah. When I found out about the book, I, I texted Michael immediately and I was like, we have to try and get him on the podcast. Like this is for us, this is as good as it gets. So thank you for, for taking the time so quickly. Well, I'm sure I'll probably end up disappointing, but, uh, you know, we'll give it a shot. Here. <laughs> Not at all. First things first, how has, uh, how has launch week been? How are, how are things going in terms of the reception? And, uh, looks like it's, it's, uh, sold out. So that, that's certainly not a bad yeah, sign. Yeah, it, uh, it apparently sold out the first day, uh, which is completely, uh, staggering to me. I was not expecting that. I think in part, uh, so I had a, a Twitter thread with a release of like the data set and a kind of animated map. And I think that went a little bit viral on, uh, on nerd, nerd Twitter, which I think fueled. <laughs> fueled a lot of that so uh yeah so it's been going really well it's uh, it's a little bit crazy i'm trying to balance that with you know like teaching and all of that stuff my normal job <laughs> but uh no it's really exciting it's, it's 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 awesome to have it out there so that's great yeah and congratulations on the 
the success of it so far. So jumping right into things, what kind of took you down this path? What got you started on this um, on this journey here with this book? Yeah, so I uh, stumbled onto this when I was a graduate student. Uh, my first year in graduate school, I was doing a research seminar, which is where you have to write a paper by the end of the uh, the semester. And I was really interested in the history of the American West and geography of uh, of the Western United States and was trying to think of ways to map out where people were moving and when. And the problem with that is that we have information from the census on how many people live in each county, but it's once every 10 years. And in the Western uh, United States, counties are quite large. So knowing that 1,700 people uh, lived in San Bernardino, Bernardino County in California tells you almost nothing, right? It's a massive, massive area. Um, and so I was trying to think of other almost proxies that I could use to map out changes in settlement patterns and stumbled upon post offices as one idea for doing so. Obviously, a post office being a kind of proxy for a surrounding community. And so I spent the semester at the San Bruno National Archives pouring over microfilm, transcribing the years of operations for California post office specifically. It took me about two or three months to do California and just for about 30 years. It was you know, just really, really difficult labor. Uh, and then wrote a seminar paper and then came back to that when I started my dissertation. Uh, and really, the more I looked at the U.S. postal system, the more I realized that it wasn't just a proxy for settlement, but it, it was an accelerating force for a lot of these larger changes in the Western United States. And uh, so that was the kind of origins of this, uh, which which brought me down this kind of circuitous route. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a pretty long journey here. So. One thing that I think is interesting uh, when you look at the American West, you know, if, if you have a country like England or or Germany or France, their borders are very tightly defined. Yeah, there was some colonial expansion, but the U.S. is is um, certainly, uh, you know, one of the most prevalent, if not only places on the planet where the the post and the country um, sort of, you know, you have post office and and the uh, the borders um, expanding at, at at you know a similar rate. Um, so, so can you talk a little bit about what makes the United States Postal Service unique um, in terms of being that driving force versus, again, the UK is not going to get any larger because you've got an ocean on all sides. So as the country expanded, you know, again, what, what is unique in America uh, in terms of the way the post interferes with society? Yeah, so the, the U.S. Uh, has a really interesting history, and in especially in the 1800s of this massive territorial expansion in a fairly short period of time, going from effectively uh, a cluster of states on the eastern seaboard to about half a century later, a really a continental uh, continental expansion. And there's obviously a lot of factors that go into it, namely, first and foremost, uh, warfare and native dispossession. Um, but the U.S. Post plays this really fascinating role in the United States that is different from places like Great Britain in that it was expansive. It was way larger than any postal system in the world, uh, consistently employing uh, tons of people and operating in many, many more locations than other places. And that was really crucial for this process of territorial expansion because that meant that a, a post office could set up shop 
in really distant places very quickly in a way that didn't happen with other national postal systems. So if you had a mining discovery in the middle of Montana territory, you would have a post office up and running within a matter of months. And what I argue in the book, the, the kind of process behind this was fairly unique to the U.S. postal system and that it used what I call the agency model. So rather than what we would uh, be more familiar with today of going to a government building, having a couple of full-time employees who work for the USPS, um, distributing you know, mail or us kind of going to mail packages, something like that. Instead, it looked very different in the 1800s where the, the federal government would give a small commission, pay a small commission to a local uh, business owner to distribute letters from, say, their store. And then they would pay a temporary contract with, let's say, a stagecoach company to carry the mail along with passengers and freight to that mining town in Montana. And so the infrastructure that was set up was uh, much more lightweight. It was semi-privatized. Uh, there was a lot, there wasn't a ton of uh, central management of it going on. And it was really driven by these towns, uh, communities on the periphery. And that's the mechanism that allowed the post to really be at the front lines of not just territorial expansion, but then also integrating that distant territory into the rest of the country. So do you know, in talking about that, do you know if this was some sort of conscious decision that the, the D.C. office, the U.S. made, knowing that expansion in this way would allow them to expand into the U.S. West faster and quicker than they could if it was overregulated? Uh, the short answer is no, and I would say this might be a little bit contested. But after reading a lot of a lot of archival material, um, I'm pretty firmly uh, convinced that the uh, no one in DC was sitting there as some kind of grand master plan, saying this is the system we're going to set up that's going to allow us to integrate territory more quickly and on a more you know widespread scale. What it stems, what it comes actually back to, was the when the post office was originally set up, so the 1792 Post Office Act. And really the thing, the, the uh, policy that was concretized into the very origins of the postal system was the idea of universal service. So where it didn't really matter where you were, the U.S. government was going to make sure that you could get your mail. And that's something that has really continued throughout um, US, U.S. history. And that dedication to providing mail service to all of these distant places, at first, you know, in 13 states, from Georgia all the way up to, you know, say Massachusetts. Um, but then as it expanded westward, that then extends out to, again, these really distant uh, mining timber places out in the Western United States. But I don't think it was some kind of conscious decision of this is the way we're gonna, you know, become a continent spanning empire in 50 years. No one had that kind of foresight. It was more an unintended consequence uh, of this commitment to, again, universal, uh, universal mail service. You said something interesting. I think a lot of people have their image of what going to the post office entails today. It means going to the government building. Uh, if it's Christmas time, you wait in line for a long time and there's a, a clerk who wants to be somewhere else. And we sort of have it fixed in our mind what the post office is. Um, but, you know, especially, you know, through, through Michael's and mine's work, we realize that a lot of these post offices were, um, I don't want to say fly-by-night operations, but they're there for a year or two because uh, the town, you know, the, the, the mines dry up and the town disappears. Um, you know, it would have been just a maybe a counter in a store or something. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, how the experience of, of going to the post office uh, has changed over the last, say, 175 years? Absolutely. So it really started 
for the vast majority of Americans for the first, oh, probably, you know, 150 years of the United States uh, existence, it was much different from it is from what it is today. And that involved the basic idea of you had to go to a post office to both send and receive mail. So prior to rural free delivery, kind of in the early 1900s, um, most Americans had to walk or ride to the post office, pick up a letter or send a letter. Um, and that meant that they needed a post office. If you have this commitment to universal service, you need a post office fairly close to almost everyone. And that's why there's so many post offices in all these different places. But that also means that you're not going to, you know, as the federal government, buying a building, hiring full-time employees to set up these, you know, shops in a tiny, uh, tiny uh, mining town of 200 people uh, doesn't make sense. So this is why this kind of commission and contract system ended up developing where they're grafting public service onto a, an existing private infrastructure. But again, there's unintended consequences that come with this. So oftentimes it was a store owner. Your local store owner would be the postmaster. But if you're a store owner, uh, there's an incentive for you to house the post office in your store. It means that everyone around you has to come at regular intervals into your store to check their mail. And that means they're also going to buy some coffee. They're going to buy some nails, right, rather than buying it at your competitors down the street. And so what you saw, which is just fascinating, is these really intense fights developing all over the country in these communities over who got to be the postmaster and where the post office was located. And at first you look at this and it's really confusing because you're like, this position pays like $30 a year, right? Like, why are these people writing their congressmen back and forth, like newspapers, just like, blah, just like insane stuff. And you're like, what is going on? And then you realize it's all about if you control where the post office is located, you're drawing foot traffic into your place of business. Um, so that's one thing. And so the experience of going in to get your mail was very much tied up with um, a kind of private, uh, private infrastructure of stores, maybe it's at a hotel, um, and also becomes a central gathering place for a community to agree that it's even more so today. It's still post offices still uh, can operate that way, oftentimes in rural communities. Um, but especially if you live in a city today, right, you're not necessarily hanging out uh, at the post office in your city. Uh, at the time, that's actually was what happened. That's where you traded gossip. That's where you heard news. That's where you met you know, friends and neighbors. Um, that's where you, a lot of politics ended up happening. Um, so the post office really was the, uh, the center of a community, both socially and also in some ways economically. And that's why you saw all these kind of interesting uh, fights develop. And then the other piece of this is that that also meant that the post office was really highly wrapped up with politics. And so again, because people cared so much about where the post office was located, who the postmaster was, what you saw was uh, a system of political patronage develop around it, um, where the executive branch, uh, the postmaster general is appointed by the president of the United States, and that means that that person has control over who gets to be postmasters in tens of thousands of these communities, which means that person can dole out these positions to party loyalists, right? If you are a Democrat organizer uh, in this mining town, a Democrat comes into power, they're going to kick out the Republican store owner down the street and install you as the postmaster, and then you get the post office in your store. 
right? So there's all these ways in which local geography ends up kind of filtering up both economically and then also into national politics as well. That, that kind of answers a question that I was going to ask later that I, that I had, uh, was what really was their appeal for people becoming a postmaster in their town? Because at one point in the book, you talk about how there was almost this expanse and contraction of postmasters or post offices at the same time that as many post offices were opening as there were closing. And, and it almost seals, seemed like there was just this, why were they interested? But to know that it was for kind of to serve the community, but also for ulterior motives to bring people into their stores and everything like that. It makes a lot more sense as to why they were willing to risk this this turnover. But sure. you also talked about how they would just close almost seemingly out of nowhere. Um, would that specifically just be for the post offices or the general stores as well? So the post office closing outside of political reasons, uh, postmasters firing people and, and everything like that. Were general stores closing as quickly as post offices? You know, it's, it's a fascinating question. And it's part of the research that surprised me the most um, was finding just the sheer number of post offices that would shut down and then sometimes reopen and then shut down and reopen and then shut down. Right. And it was taking place in the span of months, a couple of years, you know, and it just it's, it's so different from the conception we have in our heads today of a public institution, a post office, right? There's some kind of stability baked into that system that I was expecting uh, to have in the 1800s that just didn't exist. And that was especially true in the Western, uh, Western United States. Um, and so the short answer is, you know, it was pretty variable from community to community and case to case. Uh, but the West was a really unstable uh, region in the United States economically. So a lot of places in the West uh, still do, you know, rely on extractive industry. Uh, kind of boom and bust mode of economy. And so you would see mining booms pop up, post offices are coming. But then also, like I, you know, you mentioned, there's a simultaneous uh, post offices are disappearing as well. Um, I think that speaks to the larger instability of particularly the Western economy, because there is regional differences. New England is much more stable, much fewer post offices are closing in the Northeast, for instance. Um, and you also have fires are like super common. This is another thing that just blew me away was you can read records um, of towns and it's like store owner was, quote, burned out, you know, and they were burned down and they'd have to like leave and move. And so I think just the economy itself was super um, unstable. When you get into um, looking at the post in this period, obviously there's a lot of uh, tropes and stereotypes and everyone knows about the Pony Express and everybody knows about the stagecoaches. So, you know, you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your your preconceptions about the post and, and how those were upended. Um, were there any other, uh, you know, myths uh, or, or um, you know, just misheld uh, conceptions about about the way mail was handled or the way the West operated uh, that you came across in your research that you were surprised by? Was there anything else that you thought you knew going in and then as soon as you uh, started digging into the real data, it, it turned out to, to not be so? Well, I just want to say I'm, I'm impressed, Charles, that we made it 19 minutes without talking about the Pony Express. <laughs> I feel like that's usually the first thing that people are like, oh, like the Pony Express, right? To uh, a lot of people, so that's, that, that is mail. I mean, people don't realize that it was only around for, what, 18 months or whatever. And, uh, you know, you had to be very wealthy to, you know, a $5 letter is the equivalent of like $150 today. So I, th I think for a lot of people, that is mail in the West um, without realizing that it was just a, a tiny 
you know, not insignificant portion, but but certainly not the the end all be all. Yeah, I'm always I'm always amazed. The Pony Express is one of the most successful uh, marketing initiatives in American <laughs> history, right? I mean, the fact that people are still talking about today uh, lined up to the actual reality of it being an entirely private operation that you know went bankrupt after 18 months uh, months of operating. And I think the thing that surprised a lot of people is it never actually it wasn't part of it wasn't part of the U.S. postal system, right? It was not any kind of official route. This is just a private venture. Um, and what's really I, interesting, I, yeah, sorry, go for it. I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I've had an article on the back burner for years now about how uh, popular culture and how especially the, the James Cruz movie from the 20s uh, contributed to our, our public uh, misunderstanding of the uh, Pony Express. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, at some point I was I was starting to catalog all the pop culture. That, like there was like a, some TV show with I think one of the Baldwin brothers in like the 90s or something like about like Pony Express boys or something. I have no idea. Um but even the Pony Express, I think, speaks to uh, this gap between, again, what I think a lot of us have in our minds and the reality. And that the reason the Pony Express was started as a business venture, uh, they knew they were going to lose money. They knew this was not a profitable operation to set up, you know, 100 stagecoach stations or whatever, uh, or excuse me, just stations and then hundreds of horses, all these riders, right? Phenomenally expensive. Uh, but the entire goal was to get a government mail contract. That was what they were aiming for as this private company. Um, and that, I think, speaks to this system of mail transportation in the West that was entirely based on a contract model. You know, today we have our local delivery uh, people riding around in trucks, right, that are owned and branded by the USPS. And that was not the case at all across most of the Western United States and really most of the country um, the vast majority of uh, mail routes were run by private companies. And there's still a lot of contracting that happens uh, today with the USPS, but not nearly to the same degree in terms of the local delivery uh, in the West uh, in the 1800s. And I think the second piece of that as well is that oftentimes we think of this era of Western history uh, as really tied up with the railroad, the expansion of the railroad. And railroad played a huge role in the West. Uh, railroad growth and expansion uh, really shapes Western geography in many ways. But if you look at a map of where people are living, large majority of people in the Western United States are not anywhere close to a railroad line. So that last leg of the journey of, say, a letter from New York, again, out to Idaho territory, that's going to be taking place on a stagecoach. That is not kind of in the back of a mail train. Um, and that's where the system of contracting starts to get really fascinating, where you have, again, stagecoach companies competing with each other for government contracts. Um, and that leads to you know, the entire chapter in the book that I, I found really entertaining was this incredibly corrupt system developed in the West, uh, where stagecoach companies were uh, using these fraudulent bidding methods to try to drive down the price so they could get it and then drive up their compensation. I mean, there's a whole scandal that actually broke out in the uh, 1870s and early 1880s around this. Uh, and it's tied to effectively, again, coming back to this idea of universal service. How do you provide mail service to a mining camp in the middle of Idaho? And the solution is this contracting model, but that then leads to all these unintended uh, unintended consequences. Yeah, that, that led me to another question I had that, that sparked an idea was so many people were hired and fired just through one single letter, one single envelope. Uh, knowing that scandal, everything that, that you had researched then, were there any 
other forms of falsified documentation or, or people who had wanted to be a postmaster and then traveled to an area and mailed a letter from somewhere else so that they got the, the stamp dismissing a postmaster or anything kind of not in goodwill like that? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about trying to study something like corruption or fraud is that inherently yeah. people are trying to cover their tracks. So yeah. as a historian, <laughs> it's a little bit hard to, yeah. to find a smoking gun. And when you do, it's really exciting. Um, but there's definitely related to this contracting scandal on the 1870s. So uh, the U.S. Postal Administrators in Washington, uh, another thing that I found really surprising was that there just wasn't kind of the same workforce that we would expect to oversee such a massive system. And so you had postal inspectors, but there were really, I think there were like 60 or 80 of them total to cover the entire country. And this is not like today where you can fly to Arizona mm -hmm. and then rent a car and drive out there, right? Like it's, these places are operating kind of on their own. And so a lot of the administration and oversight is being done, as you said, through the mail. And so they're requiring postmasters, for instance, at the end and the start of a route uh, to mail in reports kind of documenting what time the mail arrived, what time it left, like that kind of thing. Um, and so one contractor in particular ended up uh, convincing postmasters to kind of collude with him and then falsify those documents to say that he was providing a level of service that he wasn't. Um, and then using that to lobby, uh, lobby the postmaster to give him increased compensation or more service that wasn't actually happening on these routes. Um, and I don't actually have any of those specific falsified documents that I've been able to find. These are more appearing in investigative reports that the government has done. Uh, but yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting question because right, the mail is the primary mode of communication for every, everything in the 1800s. Um, the telegraph is really, really expensive. So that's been termed by one historian, uh, the rich man's mail. Uh, but if you were the vast majority of other people, you were not using uh, telegraph to communicate. You were using letters. And so if there was fraud going on and it involved any kind of distance, there was probably going to be letters involved as well. So, You, you uh, have, have written this amazing book, but you're, you're also teaching uh, currently. Have you been able to incorporate any of this research into your coursework? And, and if so, how do students respond to this? Because uh, again, it's it's. I mean, I, I one of my favorite college courses was on the history of the American West, and and we didn't um, we didn't touch on on the mail at all. So I'm I'm curious. You know, I would have I would have loved it, obviously. But what what sort of reception do you get from uh, you know students who who maybe haven't been exposed to you know their experience with the post office is um, you know. Uh, very limited in, in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting trying to teach uh, teach students because I think you need to meet them where they are in some ways. Um, I would love to, you know, just like start to lecture about uh, Western expansion and the role of postmasters, uh, but I, I somehow think they might not uh, necessarily respond to that. Um, so you have Michael and I on the hook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. So if you want to come to Denver, enroll in some classes here, uh, we can just have, you know, a, a two-student a two class. It'll be great. Um, but I will say, I, I think um, the main way I, I've actually used this research in teaching is not so much the content of the historical side of the post office or the West, um, but I, I teach in uh, what's called digital history. And so that's using computational methods to study the past. Um, and in my case, it involves mapping out the expansion of the U.S. postal system with a data set of, you know, 166,000 
uh, post offices, which were collected by a stamp collector, uh, which I'd love to talk about uh, later because this was really key to the work. But that data set has proven actually really useful for teaching students how to use spatial uh, software to map things. It's a really nice historical data set where they can work easily with it. They can have, understand uh, what it's showing. And then I can also walk through the archival research that went into it because the data set didn't just kind of spring up magically, right? It took years and years and years of labor by the stamp collector looking at microfilmed records to create it. Um, so the data side has actually proven to me, surprisingly, to be much more useful in the classroom um, than the kind of historical side so far. But I did I did uh, show my students uh, yesterday. I, I was on the local news, came out to interview me about the book, and so I, oh, I showed them like 10, 10 seconds of it, and they, they were really tickled by that. <laughs> Well, yeah, you mentioned this research over the the top left of my computer screen. I'm looking at our set of the uh, of the Hellbach books that are uh, essential in our office. And, and can you talk a little bit about uh, about his work that, that went into this and and how you uh, came to to find out about this work and, and how you've incorporated it uh, and and built upon it uh, with your with your own research? Yeah, the number uh, the number of times I have just thought to myself, "Thank God for Richard Hellbach. I owe him so much." Um, <laughs> And so the, the backstory behind this is uh, I was a graduate student. Again, I started with this kind of seminar paper. And then as I started the dissertation, I was in the archives doing this whole process of laboriously transcribing when post offices opened, when they closed, what their names were in an attempt to map them over time. And then about a year into the research, I felt stupid, but I finally stumbled upon uh, Richard Hellbach's incredible works. There's eight volumes regionally distributed of uh, reference books listing out every post office that ever operated in the United States along with their state, their county, and their dates, their uh, years of operation. And uh, at that point, it was 2013. Uh, Richard Hellbach had actually passed away in 2011, but very fortunately for me, uh, his uh, wife, Catherine Clark, was still uh, managing the website where he was selling his, uh, his work on there. So I actually bought uh, the CD of the complete set of Richard Hellbach's uh, post offices for, I think, 80 bucks in 2013. You know, it came in an envelope. I popped in the CD in my computer and I was just like, this is the jackpot. <laughs> like, this is it. Like, this is, I knew immediately because I'd spent a year doing this work and kind of had prototypes what some of this uh, data could show you to have the entire, you know, history and geography of, of the United States postal system sitting on your on your computer screen was really just one of those moments where I was like, this is it. Um, and so I spent the next uh, couple of years developing, uh, processing the data and then doing um, a process called geocoding, which is taking those records and then trying to figure out where they are on a map. And that's actually a very challenging process to do. Um, and I won't get into all the technical specifics, but eventually I was able to kind of come up with this pipeline to map out where all these post offices were located and then show the expansion and contraction on a year-to-year -year basis. And that opened up all sorts of analytical uh, analytical possibilities that are the backbone of the book, really. And none of that would have been possible without, without Richard Hellbach, right? I wasn't gonna spend you know, 20 years you know, collecting all this information about post offices, but he did, and it's incredible, incredible work. Um, and actually released the data set uh, last week online, and it's uh, kind of blown up, and people are just thrilled by it. And I've gotten kind of requests from all sorts of other um, social scientists and academics who want to use it for all sorts of really interesting ways. 
Um, so his his work uh, and Catherine Clark's, you know, continued ability to kind of send it out to me was was absolutely crucial for this project. And the other key part of the uh, the Richard Hellbach books is the the rarity uh, rating for each post office, where um, you know it doesn't distinguish between um, cancellation devices, but but it gives you a general rule of thumb where you know that if it's a an eight or a nine, that's more valuable than a two or a three. Is there any sort of, is there a way for you to use that data? Is there a correlation between a uh, rarity of a post office's markings and the size of the town or uh, the importance of the town? Have you found out a way to incorporate uh, the, the Hellbach rarity into the research at all? I'm really excited because I feel like at this point, the conversation is going to transition to me asking you a bunch of questions. Because uh, <laughs> I actually, I, I should have you know, flagged this at the beginning for all your listeners here. I know next to nothing about stamp collecting. Um, I'm a you know historian first, who's fascinated by this history, but I'm pretty ignorant uh, when it when it comes to this whole world. Um, and I've benefited immensely, obviously, uh, from it. So, for, so I guess like my question for you is like, obviously, I, I know kind of about the stamp rarity index. I've read his documentation for how uh, how he came up with that. But how does it work like in the field? Are you bringing these to expos and kind of looking like how how does how does that work for, for stamp collectors? Michael, you want to take it first and then I'll jump in? Uh, yeah. It would, essentially, the, the, can, the people are looking for the, the cancellation and, the, and the, the specific cancel circular date cancel on these stamps or on these envelopes, letters, covers are rarer than others, I, I guess, essentially based on the scarcity, but more so probably the length of time the post office was open and the number of people it was serving. So you had talked a little bit about when applying to be a local postmaster, they'd have to write in and say, how many people are you serving for that town? And and that would kind of dictate how many, essentially how many letters are going out, whether they're being picked up five times a week, once a week. And things like this, Mr. Hellbach would, would take into account and create this index of this Specific cancel for this specific local postmaster is rarer than this one because more of these went out. And people who collect uh, covers from that time period are going to be looking for that. It's a popular collecting method, I think more so in the past than today. But people will collect their state or their county, um, you know, either where they're born or where they live. Um, I would say that. There's people who collect, you know, uh, I'd say there's at least one collector for each of the 50 states. Um, but I think generally the the Western U.S. has always been more popular, uh, maybe because of, you know, you've got the gold rush, you've got the stagecoaches. There's a lot more to it. Um, uh, territorial postmarks in particular are are very desirable um, and, and can can result in big money. And, yeah, when we you know, if we get a collection of, um, uh, let's say, uh, Utah Territory or Idaho Territory, uh, one of the first things we do is, is look at all the towns that these letters were sent from. We go to the Hellbach book. And again, if there's a, a seven, eight or I think it goes up to nine uh, in, in terms of his rankings, um, that those numbers translate into significant money uh, quite often. So, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, people are moving away from just collecting their county. Uh, I think that, um, you know, as with with, uh, you know, social sciences in general, there's uh, more of a focus on interconnectedness, where if you know what's going on in San Bernardino County, 
Uh, that's not really relevant without knowing what's going on in Riverside and Los Angeles as well. So I think that people are straying away from just a checklist of, of one of each within their county. Um, but that's still a, a huge part of this hobby is, um, yeah, the, the postmarks uh, are, are quite often um, you know, much more significant than the stamps themselves. Um, you can have a, a cheap common stamp that would have been used in any of 10,000 different post offices. But if it was used at that office that was only open from 1856 to 1858 or whatever, that's that's a, a really scarce, desirable item. So that's why the, the Hellbach, you know, we're, we're looking at these books uh, in a totally different appreciation than you are. But I think that shows how versatile and, and useful his research is, is that it can be um, applied completely differently by by different people. That, no, that that's absolutely fascinating. And thank you. Thank you for uh, spelling that out, because I, I think uh you know, I've always known kind of, you know, that that column in, in the data set and, and reading his documentation is very extensive on that. Um, and I think he terms it, you know, very kind of openly as the most, I think, arbitrary piece of information for a specific post office. <laughs> right. right. I mean, he is assigning at the, at the end of the day, a subjective score that's based on a lot of these other factors. Right. And I think it requires immense um, uh, knowledge on his end to be able to do that. Um, and so for me, it's always been this kind of piece of the data set that I kind of tried, I, I thought about, it. I was like, oh, well, like maybe I can use that for some way. But I ultimately kind of went back to the idea where because it is this kind of more, you know, we're not sure exactly what the difference between an eight versus a six is. I think it's right. uh, highly tied to the length of time a post office operated for. Um, ultimately, hey. I kind of decided to put that to the side. But it, I knew in the back of my head, Wait. I was like, yeah, this is like the entire reason most people are buying this thing. You know, and for me, it's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny, too, is how um, skewed and biased the data can be, because if you had somebody writing home to his wife and she kept every letter he sent from this small town, um, you may have a dozen letters from a post office that was only open for a year versus a post office that was open for five years and nobody thought to keep. So there is a lot of human bias that goes into. Yes, it's tied to the, um, uh, you know, the, the duration of the post office and the population of the town. But but these things can also be so messed up by just one person who thought to keep a bunch of letters for, you know, a lot of people threw away their clutter and, and again, one wife or one daughter or one brother can, can throw off, um, uh, the, the survival rates of these things. And those, uh, those people are the patron saints of historians everywhere (laughs) and probably the bane of stamp collectors, right? It's like, well, we got like 50 of these letters from this post office. So it's actually not that rare, but, Hmm. uh, yeah. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what I assume is what Mr. Helbach based most of his research on, which you dedicated almost an entire chapter to in your book, which was uh, Walter Nicholson's uh, documenting of the current postal routes as they were happening in real time. And how what fascinated me was just how little funding and how understaffed he was. It, you at one point talk about how his budget for the year was $10,000 and then the budget for Twine was $17,000. So why, and then even uh, a decade later, he, his budget had only moved up to $30,000 and they were a year behind in making these uh, routes and everything. And why was his work so undervalued when, when the it was necessary to figure out for these stagecoaches where they needed to go. They were showing up to post offices that no longer existed to pick up mail that wasn't there. 
Yeah, so these these maps are absolutely fascinating. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a historian who's really into geography. I mean, they're really um, incredible cartographic documents. And I, I've actually talked with a fair number of uh, cartographic historians who are very familiar with them. Um, and they represent a pretty important stage in the history of American cartography. Uh, but the, the background is uh, the, the position of cartographer, what they call topographer of the post office department, actually goes back a fairly long ways, um, back to the early 1800s, but then went through this period where there actually wasn't anyone making maps of the postal system, um, all the way up through uh, when Walter Nicholson was hired by the department from the U.S. Coast Survey, uh, which was the one of the big scientific institutions and mapping institutions for the federal government. He's hired during the Civil War in 1863. Uh, and it was basically him and a couple map makers there. Uh, and like you said, wasn't given a whole lot of funding and started to make these regional maps where it would be of, you know, a collection of a couple states, uh, you, know, you know, Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, something like that, and trying to map out where are these post offices located and where are the routes that are connecting them? How often is the mail being transmitted between them? And it was really one of the first times that uh, administrators in Washington were actively trying to figure out what is happening on the ground <laughs> and documenting it cartographically in a really fine, uh, fine-grained way, which again is kind of mind-blowing for us, right? That like you could be administering the postal system and not actually know where a post office was located or how, like, where it's it's in relation to other people. And these all exist on, you know, uh, records that they're transcribing here, but it's not in a map form, which, mm -hmm. again, to our modern mind, just is kind of, like, amazing. Uh, and Walter Nicholson is the first time where there's an attempt made to figure out uh, what the geography of that system is like. Um, but I think it does also, one of the reasons why, and his maps were incredibly popular, not just amongst uh, uh, administrators working for the postal department, it was you know, used extensively with the railroad mail service, for instance, um, but also across the federal government. And so you ended up, he had documented that he was sending out copies of these maps to Congress people, to other federal agencies, even up to the president of the United States had copies of these postal maps because oftentimes this was the best source of spatial information that we had for these local distant places, how towns were arranged uh, in relation to one another um, and the land of routes that were connecting them. But the flip side of that is that, uh, as, as we were talking about before, this system is incredibly unstable. And so especially in these you know, new places in the Western United States, post offices are opening, they're disappearing, the routes between them are changing. The number of times the mail is, is traveling between them changes all the time. And if you are, I just, the number of times I sat there thinking like these poor map makers in Washington, <laughs> right? Like trying to track thousands of changes that are happening you know, every month, basically, and like erasing these lines and then drawing new ones in and trying to fix that. So it's this constant process of revision, again, that is very different from what we would think of as a map that is a stable entity of let's say Colorado where I live. Well, that map in a year from now, if you were, this was the 1870s, would basically be obsolete. Hmm. And so they're always playing catch up, trying to figure out where these new offices were, which ones are being discontinued, ones that are changing names. Uh, and so to me, what it, what it ended up being for that chapter was really spoke to just how decentralized this system was during this period. Um, there was not a lot of centralized uh, oversight or management 
of all these changes happening on the periphery. And Nicholson's initiative was one of the few efforts that really did try to document all of that. And even him, you know, is really frustrated by not being able to do so uh, in a timely or accurate manner all the time. Um, and so that became a stand-in for me for really rethinking the ways in which the federal government operated during this period in a, in a very different way from, uh, from the 20th century. So it, another question I, I had that, that you had mentioned, you're, you, you're looking at this from purely a, a historical standpoint, and we're looking at it from it, it, the fascinating philatelic standpoint on our, our end. You know, we're, we're just fascinated by all this kind of the postal routes and everything. But my, one of my largest questions was, how, how are these local postmasters acquiring the stamps to sell to their customers that are coming in? So you, you talk about how their um, private contractors and everything like that, are they buying the stamps ahead of time? It, it, it was a little um, perplexing to me that, that they would open and close so quickly. And, 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 and you can't vet all of these people. You've got a yeah. bunch of you know, rogues in the American West who are all of a sudden entrusted. With, and the mail you know, to us today is this sacred, yeah. you, know, you can't open someone, someone's mail, it's a crime. And yeah, you're just enlisting all of these um, uh, you know, thousands of, uh, yeah, yeah, and there's going to be a, a, you know, a, a mixed bag to say the least. So yeah, mm-hmm. what, what was their relationship like with Washington? How did they get the stamps? And, and, and was there any sort of oversight into yeah. their um, uh, you know, uh, administration of the post? Uh, so the the second question is: Was there any oversight? Uh, the short answer is no, which is again pretty <laughs> remarkable. Um, and you have these like letter exchanges back and forth, where like someone will be like, "Hey, you need to make sure that you're you know distributing letters more succinctly," and the guy is just like completely ignoring them, um, and there's no real consequences, right? Um, but uh, but in terms of the the stamps, so there, I believe there are regional uh, depositories that people would send both uh, revenue and then I think receive stamps from. And then what would happen was if that postmaster was replaced by someone else, you would get a letter from the department instructing you to essentially hand over all the official material that you were given as part of this job. So by the 1880s, I believe each postmaster was receiving um, a postal guide, a kind of rules and regulations they were supposed to follow. Again, didn't actually follow in practice oftentimes. (laughs) So they would hand that over along with any kind of uh, unused stamps uh, and I think a couple other different, you know, account books, stuff like that would then go to the postmaster down the street. Uh, But there's surprisingly little documentation that I could find, uh, again, uh, between those connections. There's there's some back and forth going on. Um, But my impression is, you know, you're appointed, you know, uh, you get, you know, a set of stamps and a manual and then you're kind of on your own. Um, And Mm -hmm. oftentimes, uh, for smaller post offices, the vast majority of post offices, your commission, your your salary from the government was not a salary. It was based as a percentage of the outgoing mail from your office, the number of stamps that were canceled. Um, and so you would be keeping this account book and then sending in uh, the surplus, but then keeping, you know, whatever it ended up being, like 40% of the revenue that comes in from those stamps. And that's not a ton, right? You're talking, you know, a hundred bucks or something like that a year. Um but yeah, and so there's there's definitely local um, some local archives that have been have been kept of these account books or you know money orders that have originated from offices. You know, one of the big 
two chapters actually in the book really focus on a specific town called North Bloomfield, California, uh, where the postmaster there ended up keeping a lot of these, these department records and they're archived at the California State Library. And it's an incredible window into this one local community and how that post office uh, post office function. And so there's thousands of um, money order receipts, for instance, documenting, you know, uh, like the names of the people who are sending a $5 money order to Weinstock department store in Sacramento for exactly this much on this day. And so there's super fine grained information there uh, that I ended up using quite a bit in the book. So it's a an absurd amount of trust that the U.S. government is putting into these people that they previously did had no idea who they were, just and had to take their almost their word on it. Hey, I've opened up a general store. I'd like to be a postmaster. Okay, here's your stamps. And in that day, I mean, some of these stamps, the monetary value in full sheets, I assume, or maybe they were breaking them down, is has, has to be huge. Was there any? Uh, sort of documentation as to people who would open up fake post offices? Not quite fake post offices that I, at least that I've heard of. There were kind of paper post offices, um, but uh, effectively, so because the compensation again is based on the outgoing mail, there is a kind of mechanism in there okay. for checking. What was fascinating to me was uh, there is actually fairly widespread documentation of people um who let's say really hated the local store owner, or it was you know a Republican community and a Democrat was in charge of the post office. Sometimes would go down the road three miles to the next town and send their mail from that postmaster <laughs> to basically stop that person from getting a commission. Um, so that's and then they're writing to their Congress member complaining, saying like they're not allowed to do this. I mean, so there's all these kind of tips that are happening on, on a local level there. Um, but yeah, the, the the lack of regulation was kind of staggering. Um, and the other thing, the stamps thing is, is really interesting. There is um, also these periods of uh, uh, the ways in which stamps operated as fractional currency I found really interesting. Um, essentially, in the Western United States in particular, there's a real lack of money circulating, physical money, uh, paper currency, uh, and in particular, fractional currency, so less than $1.00. Uh, is not really circulating very much in the West. And so people end up using stamps as a kind of shadow currency for, you know, five cents for this or something like that. Uh, and there's this like, I don't know if it was a real story or not, but the Postmaster General reported one year that uh, some some postmaster in Utah, I think, like bought a house just with stamps or something <laughs> that he'd like managed to like collect because people were paying him uh, using stamps. So uh, so there's there's a whole interesting connection to kind of uh, financial history as well uh, that I just barely scraped the surface of uh, in the book. So. Well, my last question for you is you've come this far without becoming a collector. Have you ever been <laughs> tempted? Uh, have you ever been bitten by the bug, e even if it's just to, you know, collect letters for the contents, maybe not the stamps themselves, but but has is there any part of you that is uh, that is tempted to you know dip a toe into this? Uh, this hobby. Uh, so the the truthful answer is no. Um, but <laughs> the big but is that I, I oftentimes feel like uh, historians uh, often can be like parasites in the sense that we rely on other people collecting stuff for us. Hmm. Uh, so archivists are the classic example where they're collecting all this material that then we're kind of leeching off and using. And in my case, obviously. Richard Hellbach, right? Stamp collector is the basis 
for a lot of the analysis uh, in this book. Uh, but I will say, I think the the stamp collecting dimension I've always found really fascinating. And this is common, I think, uh, for historians, not just for kind of relationship to stamp collectors, but also all sorts of other communities that do really, really important in-depth historical research as part of their uh, their passion. So you've got genealogy, right? It's a huge, huge number of people doing genealogy, uh, Civil War buffs, railroad buffs, right? There's all these communities of people uh, doing history that are not, you know, trained professional historians, um, but are producing incredible work. And I think what I've found um, oftentimes is the really, the really cool part for me is trying to take uh, work that a lot of times for these, these I think in communities are really focused in specifics and details, right? And, you know, exactly what year was the stamp canceled and how many people were at this office and where was it located, right? Um, and then connecting that into larger stories and larger processes. And that's been the really cool part for me is being able to, again, take this incredible research that Richard Helbach has done and then use it to really explain some bigger uh, bigger insights into what life was like uh, in the late 1800s, what the nature of the federal government was, what was the geography, uh, pace, and rate of Western expansion. So again, some of these larger questions um, that you can kind of tie to these more specific forms of knowledge, I think is really cool. So This is what I was saying to Michael, actually, in the introduction before you joined us. I said, I think sometimes collectors, myself included, uh, get blinders on and, and maybe get hyper-focused on something. And, and a book like yours is, is really important for collectors uh, to, to contextualize what it is they're doing and to take a step back and, and look at the bigger picture and, and how do these stamps and these postal routes um, connect to the, the development of a country like, like it has over the last, um, you know, 250 years or whatever. So I, I, I think that, uh, you know, again, even though you're not a collector, you're sort of an honorary collector and that you help us <laughs> uh, realize why, why what we do is even important. You, uh, you give us a, a purpose in a way, I think. Yeah, no, I am, like I said, indebted to the uh, philatelist community uh, professionally and, and intellectually for, for the rest of my career here. Uh, and I, I hope the, the reception will be uh, somewhat positive amongst that community. But I, I do think, um, just to kind of revisit that, uh, stamp collecting, I, I think, speaks to, in some ways, what I see as one of the really fascinating parts of the U.S. Post and its history, and that it was this institutional presence that was everywhere. Every single town had a post office. And that's, I think, part maybe of the appeal uh, of stamp collecting is that you can find these, you know, canceled stamps from everywhere and figuring out what is rare and, you know, how many things originated from this place. How is it connected to there? Um, and the history of the post that I found so interesting is that very ubiquitous presence, or excuse me, presence um, allows you to use it as a window into understanding life during that time. Um, both at the local level all the way up to the national level. And that's the part of the research um, that I really kept coming back to was this connection between, again, these individual letters originate, originating from an individual post office, uh, tying into this national system of information, and then being able to study that system as a whole and the interactions between them, I just found really interesting. So, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Cameron, thank you so much. This has been absolutely this is, fantastic. This, this has been, been great. Incredible. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. This yeah. has been uh, fascinating. And, and and thank you for this book that, again, yeah. Michael and I have been discussing. The last week has been us uh, bouncing back and forth yeah. about the book. So to, to be able to talk to you is a, a real pleasure. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. And obviously, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks for humoring me and shedding some light on various stamp collecting practices here. 
Uh, and I should say that the book is currently uh, back ordered. <laughs> I think it was a little more popular than uh, perhaps my publisher was expecting it to be. I'm guessing in part because of uh, Philatelist, but uh, you can uh, you can order it on uh, Oxford University Press or on Amazon, and there should be more copies coming in uh, later this month. So. Perfect. Fantastic. We'll put links in the uh, description and everything yeah, so that everyone uh, can can easily grab a copy. Yeah, and All you right, can. All, it, good. I I ordered a physical copy, but it didn't get here in time, so I had to buy a digital copy as well, just to make sure. This is that, uh, this is just a scheme to sell more books. I think. <laughs> so you exactly. can buy digitally digitally as well. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank so you much. very much. Yeah. All right. Take care. Right. Bye bye. Michael, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, this book, um, I don't know what to say other than yeah. just go buy it. If, if it's still out of stock, go buy a digital copy and then yeah. pre-order, you know, like, like uh, get on a waiting list for a physical copy. Um, because the, the, the research that Cameron's doing, I, I think, is just so important. And I love that he touched on it at the end, that, that stamp collectors are on the one hand, the reason that a lot of this information still exists uh, it's sort of a two-way street where he's using the work of stamp collectors, and now it's on stamp collectors to uh, read this book and understand the bigger picture about why our hobby is so important. You, know, the first thing every stamp collector is asked is, "Why do you collect stamps?" Yeah. And how great is it to be able to have an you know, read a book like this? And I feel like your answer becomes much more, uh, yeah. you know, impassioned and uh, and 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 significant. So uh, well, I just well, not I thoroughly not only that, that, but what I what I love about this is it it stamp collectors are always looking for an excuse to collect more things. So you read this book and, and it just makes you want to dive deeper into individual postmarks or, or maybe, yeah, collect your County or anything like it just, it, it opens your eyes to, to just how vast and how chaotic the post office was in the West, uh, in the late 1800s. And it, it's just, it's a fascinating book. It was just a fantastic read. And, and for for me to listen to somebody who's not a collector themselves yeah. get so excited and and uh, have so much information at his fingertips about yeah. you know about this hobby um that was just that was that was just one of the most enjoyable interviews uh, we've done since we started this whole thing that was yeah. just uh, what more can you say <laughs> yeah it was fantastic I, we, I can't I can't thank Cameron enough. Yeah, that was great. And it, it, he he responded to us when you reached out to him. He responded so quickly. He was just so on board. To I I I feel like again we've got to make him an honorary stamp collector. Yeah. Like, we've got, like <laughs> yeah. his contributions to the hobby are such. Like he, I feel like he's yes. one of us, even if he's even if he's looking at it from a completely different angle. Yeah, yeah, great book. Uh, in the description or show notes, uh, we'll have links notes, to the physical copy, links, digital copy. Yes. Um, I really Absolutely. strongly recommend this book. It was it was fantastic. Paper trails. Uh, yep. Go check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Charles, um, no, this was uh, this was good. I will. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Let's uh, let's also tell people uh, where they can listen. This is on yes, YouTube. This is on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, um, uh, Google Podcasts. We're at flatterlypodcast.com, flatterlypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of this episode, if you yeah. enjoyed it as much as we did, because uh, for me, this is uh, this is a big one. So yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you to Cameron. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Um, Michael, I'll talk to you real soon. Yeah. See you. Uh, see you next time. Thanks. Sounds good. Bye.